This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moe, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Ilya Shapiro directs the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute, the public policy think tank dedicated to the promotion of individual liberty, limited government, and free markets. Mr. Shapiro earned his JD from the University of Chicago Law School. He later served as a clerk for Judge E. Grady Jolly for the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. His commentary on fundamental constitutional issues has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, the Washington Post, USA Today, National Review, and the New York Times. But today we're going to be talking about his most recent book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. The topic couldn't be more timely, and I'm looking forward to this conversation today. Ilya Shapiro, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I just have to say, uh, you have the best timing for any new book release of anyone I have ever known. Uh, right now, with uh, all that's going on in our country, the President Trump's nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett uh, to the Supreme Court, uh, the issues you address in your book, the history you tell, and uh, the uh, the arguments you make, they just could not be better timed. So congratulations. Yeah, the publisher had to pay extra for that. I mean, we, we of course, were timing it to go ahead of the election where yeah. we thought the court would be an issue, but uh, not necessarily like this. Yeah, you know, the, the thing is, there are a lot of books about the Supreme Court and uh, a lot of books about uh, the, uh, the confirmation process. But uh, you get to the crucial issues, and I, I have a dialogue with the books that I read, and uh, so I have my own diacritical marks on the rest of it. I, I mean, I made a mess of your book. Uh, <laughs> well, you might just have to buy another one to, so you have a clean copy. Absolutely. Uh, start with a blank slate. Something I do, by the way, with a lot of books a few years after I read them the first time. I don't want to read the copy that I, I, I marked because I want to see you know, how my thought has changed, how I read the book differently. But in, in your book, you're really dealing with the history of, uh, well, I don't want to use adjectives here. I'll, I'll simply say what has produced the current context, both on the court and uh, in the confirmation process. So well, I, let me just ask you, start that narrative. Start start where you want to begin telling the story. Sure. Kind of tell us where we need to start thinking. I mean, I'll, I'll start with the conclusion or rather the, the, the narrative thesis of the book, uh, because I set out uh, in the wake of the Kavanaugh hearings and, and confirmation to find out what role exactly politics has played historically, because a lot of us who follow this stuff know, you know, back to Robert Bork, basically 30 years or so, but what happened before that? And it turns out that politics has always played a role in nominations and confirmations in all sorts of different ways that we can get into however you like, but you know, George Washington had a nominee rejected. What's different now is that, first of all, there's the centralization of power in Washington. So the federal government is, is big. What the Supreme Court rules on, therefore, is big and important. And we have divergent interpretive theories of the Constitution, of statutory law, that map onto partisan preferences at a time when the parties are more ideologically sorted than they've been since at least the Civil War. So, of course, you're going to have these uh, fraught battles over each one of these precious seats when they become open. You know, right now we're looking at a context in which uh, many in the media, and I, I, one of the things I recognize, I'm, I'm 60 years old, one of the things I recognize is that so many of the people who are in the media, they're, they're not only, you know, 
ideologically distant from where I am. They're generationally distant from where I am. And so I tend to read things even this morning, you know, with people saying, you know, this, uh, this new hyper-politicization of the court. And I'm thinking, my goodness, where were you in 1987 with the Bork hearings? You know, where, where were you when, when I was growing up and there were calls to uh, impeach, uh, you know, Chief Justice Earl Warren and others? Um, you know, the, famously, the, uh, the court was intended as the least dangerous branch. But actually, one of the points you make is it, it never actually turned out that way. It, in other words, it, it was never apolitical. And in a political culture, it can't, it can't be totally apolitical. Well, it was less dangerous or less uh, significant at certain parts in our history. In fact, in the very early days, people would decline nominations even after they'd been confirmed. Communications, what they were, you didn't find out you were even confirmed uh, until a bit later. And it wasn't, uh, didn't have the same presti- prestige that it has now or, or, or would have later. Um, uh, if you were a prominent lawyer uh, or law professor in, in Boston or Philadelphia or something, then uh, or on that state Supreme Court, why would you want to go to the swamp in Washington uh, and sit in the Senate basement, didn't have its own building, and be forced to what, what was known as riding circuit, literally on horseback going around uh, you know, to the south and northwest, the frontier and what have you, to help the federal judiciary hear those cases. Of course, the last time that someone declined a Supreme Court uh, seat was uh, Roscoe Conkling, the uh, New York party boss in 1882. That's not really going to happen much anymore. Um, but but you're right that the, the 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 court has been politicized in different ways at different times. And people ask me what's been the most controversial or the most political um, uh, fight that we've had. Asking me, presumably uh, thinking that I'll choose between uh, Kavanaugh, Thomas, and Bork. But I go back to 1916. Louis Brandeis, nominated by Woodrow Wilson, very tumultuous year in American politics. Um, Brandeis was the first Jewish nominee, but even more controversially, he was this crusading progressive on economic regulation, on, on lots of things. World War I was going on. His process lasted almost five months, the longest of anyone. His final vote was, uh, the margin was broader than, than Kavanaugh or Thomas, uh, but, but still, very contentious stuff. And after he was confirmed, uh, by the way, they had the, the hearings for the first time ever that year. It, it wasn't done before then. It's not a statutory requirement, let alone constitutional, although the nominee himself did not testify. That was seen as unsafe seemly. Nominees didn't start regularly testifying until the 50s. But anyway, after Brandeis was con- uh, confirmed, one of his colleagues, uh, uh, Justice Charles Evans Hughes, resigned from the court to run against President Wilson in yeah. the election. So if you think 2020 or 2016 uh, display uh, an interrelationship between the court and uh, the presidential election, I'll, I'll see that and I'll raise you 1916. Yeah, absolutely. I want I want to get to uh, Wilson and Brandeis and the 20th century, but I, I've got to take us back still to the uh, late 18th and early 19th century for just a bit, because you make a very strong argument that has nothing to do and everything to do with the current status of the court, and, and that is you make an extremely strong argument, and you do so in the beginning, in the middle, and especially in the end of your book. Uh, for the Supreme Court's power of judicial review, you know, going back to Chief Justice Marshall. And you basically say there's no point in having the court if it does not have the power of judicial review, the, the ability to look at acts of Congress or even presidential orders and, uh, and rule them unconstitutional. Uh, but here's the question I want to ask you. Uh, 
do you think that the framers of the Constitution explicitly foresaw uh, the court's power of judicial review? Well, I don't know what you mean by explicitly. I mean, they say it's it's not in the Constitution. You know, the, right. it doesn't say the court shall review the laws. It doesn't say that. Right. It says the judicial power. I think it's implicit because the way they set up uh, the, the 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 new republic uh, structurally with three different branches, each one checking each other in various ways. I don't think they set up the Supreme Court purely to resolve contract disputes between citizens of different states. It's also to check. The, pre, the elected branches, the, 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 the executive branch, the president, and now the administrative state, uh, as well as, as Congress, to make sure that what they were doing came within spitting distance of what the Constitution uh, allowed them to do. And it wasn't until our third chief justice, John Marshall, the, the great chief as he was known, that the court really began assuming that kind of uh, power unto itself uh, to make sure to review uh, uh, what was going on, in part because uh, the early, the earliest years of the republic, there wasn't as much political contention. Uh, there were, there wasn't the party system. It was just the federalists, uh, and it was when you know when when Thomas Jefferson beat John Adams uh, in the election of 1800 that things really started changing. And by the way, we talk about John Marshall. John Marshall was nominated by lame duck President John Adams after he had lost that election to Thomas Jefferson. Then he was confirmed by the capital F. Uh, Federalist uh, Senate. So, you know, there's there's very little new under the sun in terms of hardball politics of uh, confirming, not confirming, not acting upon, uh, rejecting uh, uh, nominees in our history. It comes down to politics, but um, uh, judicial review, I think, has to be a part of it. And, you know, we had the Civil War in part because the Supreme Court did not get, do a good job in the Dred Scott case uh, in, you know, try to split the baby, not fully resolving the question of slavery and the Fugitive Slave Act and, and things like this. And it's, you know, it's when the court tries to act politically or tries to think of its own institutional reputation rather than the law itself that it starts getting into trouble. Yeah, the background to my uh, raising the issue is the fact that when I was uh, a teenager and a college student, uh, American history and civics was taught with a narrative that the uh, innovation of judicial review by Chief Justice Marshall was uh, the great turning point in the court's history. And of course, much opposed by uh, Andrew Jackson as president and others. Uh, and so uh, I, I just, just given the realities of 2020, your book coming out, I, I just noted that you made a, an extremely strong point and, and you didn't elaborate on it, you didn't have to. Uh, that, uh, I mean, basically the Supreme Court we know is a court that unquestionably now has the power of judicial review. Well, the, the elaboration was in the uh, 40,000 words that were uh, on the editing floor, uh, as it were. Yeah, but uh, I, understand that. I mean, the thing is, we ought to debate how the court exercises its power of judicial review, what yeah. theories to apply when it's prudential to not overturn precedent that might be erroneous, stare decisis, as lawyers call it. Uh, all of these sorts of issues are worthy of debate, not whether someone is being uh, not restrained enough or too activist. You know, activist is a, is a vapid uh, insult at this point that is thrown around by everybody just to mean a decision they don't like or a justice they don't like. Um, so uh, the, the debate is properly over how do we interpret the power to regulate interstate commerce, the Commerce Clause, or uh, the right to keep and bear arms under the Second Amendment. That That's valid, but just saying that, you know, you're an activist or you should be restrained, I mean, that's these judicial modes. It's It's like so many angels dancing on the head of a pin. 
Well, lest we be uh, looking at angels dancing on the head of a pen, let's go uh, fast forward then, especially to the early 20th century. Uh, Woodrow Wilson is now president of the United States, a progressivist himself, uh, someone who is president of Princeton University and as professor of the new discipline of uh, political science, it would later be called. Uh, He's very tied to a Hegelian kind of philosophy and to uh, the unfolding of history and sees the Constitution, as ratified in 1789, as uh, as a hindrance to what he sees as the necessity of a much more aggressive, activist, larger, bureaucratic, administrative uh, federal government led by experts, uh, much like a European context. And so when you mention uh, Louis Brandeis being nominated to the court, uh, Louis Brandeis was the incarnation of Wilson's vision in so many ways. And uh, so it was really a fight worth having, wasn't it? I mean, I, th- I think so. Um, Wilson, uh, I went to Princeton, so I'm, I'm well aware of his legacy. He was just canceled by Princeton, his name right. removed from the public policy school where my undergraduate degree is, is from. Um, and yeah, he thought the, the Constitution was outmoded. Uh, these checks and balances, he called it the, 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 the Newtonian kind of structure. Um, that's, uh, you know, that was for another time. Now, meaning the early 20th century, we know how to govern. We just put the right experts in place for agriculture, the right experts in place for the burgeoning uh, industry during the Industrial Revolution, the right experts in place for the Department of War and all of these things, and and let them have at it. Uh, there should not be any debate. What do you mean democratic accountability? We know how to do this stuff. It's a it's a it's a political science, precisely as uh, as you said. And so it's from him. You know, the the administrative state really took off under under uh, FDR and the New Deal, but it's uh, it's uh, it began in in the brain of. Of, of Woodrow Wilson. I mean, he his idea of government by administration, uh, borrowing from German political science where he had studied and the, the Bismarckian notion, uh, that's that's where all that originated. And yeah, it set up a big clash of theory of how to interpret the, the Constitution, which also wouldn't really reach fruition until the, uh, the New Deal era in the 30s and early 40s. So I think the average American, even the average college-educated American, really would be shocked uh, by Wilson's actual explicit statements long before he was president about the U.S. Constitution. I mean, he, he was already uh, arguing that if the nation were to be bound by the enumerated powers uh, you know, of the Constitution, it could never be a modern progressive government adequate to the civilization that it, it was serving. Uh, you know, the man was elected president of the United States twice. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I just don't think the average American had a clue of uh, of what Wilson thought about the Constitution. Well, arguably, he wouldn't have won the first time had um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, then right. former president, you know, Taft was running for re-election, and Teddy Roosevelt, right. who was a progressive Republican, so disagreed with Wilson on some things, but was all about trust busting and regulating to get the uh, to harness the Industrial Revolution and things like that, uh, and so basically uh, uh, Roosevelt and uh, Taft split the Republican vote and. Um, uh, Wilson put together what now seems like an unlikely coalition of essentially uh, northern liberals and southern, you know, uh, very conservative Democrats, uh, which, you know, be- became uh, the history of the, the middle part of the, the 20th century. But, but you're right. And, and this is coming from not some populist who is just saying all sorts of things and doesn't really know what the, how the Constitution works. He is a learned professor and a, and a, and a, and a PhD. Uh, but he he rejects the 
Enlightenment era classical liberal thinking about uh, structural constraints uh, on government. Indeed, yeah. he wants a, a constitutional revolution in how American governance is conducted. I guess the best word to use is progressivist in this sense, uh, historically and technically. Uh, the, the progressivist transformation of the court didn't come instantly, but uh, the court began basically uh, to see itself as at least responsible. And of course, you got the, you know, switch in time saves nine by the time you get to FDR's court packing out of frustration, or at least his, his effort. But my point is that by the time you get from, say, 1915 to, uh, to 1955, uh, th there's a real shift to a progressivist understanding of the Constitution. I mean, ba basically, it's no longer a matter of being bound to the words, the sentences, the propositions, the syntax. It's, it's now being bound to a vision of government that's very different. I think that's right. And it's, it's, it's reading the words in a way that, uh, do, as you said, that, that don't bind you, that the, the words grow over time, the, the living constitution, uh, if you will. Uh, and that was why you, you spoke of the impeach Earl Warren signs. Part of that is uh, a reaction to desegregation orders and the, the world of Jim Crow. Part of it is to the revolution in, in constitutional criminal procedure. Uh, and other types of uh, social regulation that the uh, that the Warren Court was involved in. Uh, and by the way, um, you know, we talk about uh, uh, you know resistance to or advancement of uh, progressive theories of the Constitution or of public policy. Wilson also stands for the idea that presidents can't control very well the nominees uh, who they choose. Sure, he had Brandeis, the, the the progressive crusader. He also nominated William Clark McReynolds one of the more retrograde justices of the 20th century, a, a bigot, didn't like uh, all sorts of different classes of people, inclu including drinkers and smokers, uh, wouldn't pose in the same photograph with Louis Brandeis because he was anti-Semitic, but even beyond that, uh, was just an unpleasant person. Two other colleagues of his on the court uh, left, resigned from the Chevy Chase Country Club in suburban DC so they wouldn't have to run across him so much. And he was one of the, what we came known as the four horsemen uh, uh, the votes against uh, uh, FDR's New Deal program in his first term. Why did Wilson appoint him? Well, they shared racism, of course, but also they shared a view of antitrust. That was the one progressive issue on which they had an agreement, and Wilson really cared about that at the time. And then Wilson's third nominee was basically uh, an insignificant one. Uh, James Hessen Clark only served a few years, was uh, did not leave much of an impression. So three nominations, a president who was significant, uh, and, and in three different ways. So it's not a modern phenomenon that a president nominates someone and then is surprised or would be surprised at the direction the person takes decades later. We're going to talk a bit, uh, I hope, about why that's so. And it, it's not just a matter of judicial personality and temperament. It's also a matter of the cases that come before the court and any number of, of other issues. But just, just following a chronology, uh, the pace of your work picks up, at least it did for me, about the time you reach my own uh, time period. And uh, by the time I kind of politically came of age and was fascinated with the Constitution, American history, uh, the interpretation of texts uh, as a theologian, the, the Bible, but also as, a, as looking at the role of judges and, and others with the, the text of the Constitution, looking, looking at those issues, uh, even by the time you reached 1968 and the election of Richard Nixon as the Republican president, He's already using the term strict constructionist. In other words, that there was already a recognition that there were two rival 
visions of interpreting the U.S. Constitution, and they had political consequences. I think, you know, most people we would date that concern to Edwin Meese and Ronald Reagan, but Richard Nixon was talking about it out loud in 1968. Right, and this was a response to the, the Warren Court activism that we've been discussing, and 68 was a turning point. I mean, it was a turning point in American culture and American politics and, and also in American law. Uh, LBJ was a self-anointed lame duck, uh, unpopular because of Vietnam, uh, but had a vacancy. Uh, Earl Warren uh, wanted to retire in 1968. And so LBJ nominated or uh, wanted to elevate Justice Abe Fortas to become Chief Justice. Uh, he ran into some ethical problems, was paid for some speeches that he didn't declare. Certain other uh, financial uh, uh, issues came up faced bipartisan opposition in the Senate. Some people call this the first filibuster of a Supreme Court nominee, but he never even had a majority of declared support. So, uh, and in any event, it was it was bipartisan. So that failed. Um, uh, that was the last uh, election year uh, nomination when uh, the party in the Senate was the same as the party in the White House that failed, by the way. Um, and so Nixon got to appoint Earl Warren's successor, which became uh, Warren Burger. Nixon also put on the court Bill Rehnquist, who was the, the most conservative until Scalia arrived, basically. Um, but also Harry Blackman, who ended up writing uh, Roe v. Wade. But yeah, you're right. That, that late 60s, early 70s, when Robert Bork was making a name for himself intellectually, was the conservative response to uh, the leftward drift, uh, or not even drift, but... but, but uh, uh, radical action in uh, in the in the late fifties and and sixties uh, uh, on the court. Justice Elena Kagan has made the statement: "We're all textualists now," uh, referring to the fact that uh, one of the achievements of Antonin Scalia, amongst others, but it, she credited it actually to the late Justice Scalia, uh, was the fact that even more liberal progressive members of the court now making the arguments have to make much more reference to the actual text of either this, the Constitution or, more commonly, statutory law. Uh, you know, the interesting thing there is the admission that there was a little, you make this point in your book, uh, there are a lot of court decisions during the periods of, from the, the end of the Second World War in particular, maybe even before. But uh, until you get uh, a couple of generations later, there are a lot of court cases that are actually not that legal in one sense. They're, they're, they don't make that much reference to the law of the Constitution. How did that happen? I mean, arguably, yeah. Brown versus Board of Education, uh, I'm not debating the outcome of the case, but the the, the point is that it, it was argued incredibly on the matter of sociology more than even the Constitution. The, the way it was written, I think, I think you're right. Uh, perhaps they didn't have the legal tools. I mean, uh, Michael McConnell, former 10th mm -hmm. Circuit judge, now a Stanford law professor, has made a very convincing case. I think the article is now 20 or more years old about the, the originalist case uh, for how to decide Brown versus Board of Education. And I, I agree with that on, on various grounds. We don't need to get into that. But you're right. That's not the way the court was deciding uh, uh, those cases. Uh, and uh, I, I should add that that this conservative response that we're uh, talking about was also a little off in the sense that it wasn't about uh, you have to interpret the Constitution for its original public meaning or even the intent of the founders, which is not correct, but the early originalism was uh, had that. It was more about this judicial restraint and the the way we fight this activism is by having judges effectively just defer to the political branches, which I think is wrong as well, because if the political branches are doing things that are beyond the Constitution, then judges shouldn't sit there uh, uh, like, uh, like like potted plants. But uh, uh, 
Um, you're right. There has been a trend. Uh, and, you know, I graduated law school in 2003. I was told that if you went to law school in the 70s and 80s, the Constitution wouldn't even be in your constitutional law casebook. Um, you know, by the time I was there, it was, you know, at the beginning. It sort of started in Appendix H and then started migrating forward. But, uh, but you're right. For a long time, the legal theories that were taught in the academy had uh, very little to do with the actual law on the books, let alone constitutional text. Yeah. Uh, I was honored to receive the Edwin Meese Award for uh, originalism uh, some years ago, and uh, uh, the former attorney general made the statement at the uh, at the the lunch. Uh, he said, "You could have put all of these people in a cloakroom uh, in 1975, but uh, by the time you get to the, I guess this was about uh, 2005 or six, he said it, it's now." It's now mandatory discussion in every law school in the land. You know, not to say they agree with it, but you you have to talk about this. Uh, it becomes a part of the intellectual background. The uh, the the reality is that there's been a huge revolution, uh, but an incomplete revolution. And, and frankly, you know, even when you talk about originalism, you got strict constructionism and textualism. You know, they're they're, they're they don't all mean the same thing, even though they can sometimes implicate the same person. Uh, yeah, I mean, Ed Meese is underappreciated in this whole story. Uh, even before he was attorney general and he was counselor to the president, um, speeches that he gave, there was one notable one to the ABA in 1985 that uh, really set out uh, originalism. And Scalia, of course, was working at that time and was had already been put on the D.C. circuit by President Reagan at the time. Uh, and, um, I mean, that that picking judges not simply to be loyal Republicans or friends of the president or of the senator or what have you, but for their intellectual architecture uh, was an innovation for its time. And Mies uh, deserves uh, a lot of that credit. He started doing that uh, with then Governor Reagan in California when, when Reagan was governor of California. Um, but you're right, there's a, there are a lot of differences. And you see that from the uh, Republican appointed justices now not all of them call themselves originalists and textualists. Most of them do explicitly. But there's a, a big difference between uh, uh, Clarence Thomas's historical approach, Sam Alito's deference to law and order in many cases, uh, Neil Gorsuch with his natural rights, natural law approach, uh, um, Kavanaugh also very much text and structure and history, but uh, 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 strategic and cautious, somewhere between John Roberts, who's all about strategy and being minimalistic, and only moving incrementally between that and and the Clarence Thomas wing. Now, Judge Barrett, if she becomes Justice Barrett, she's said uh, in so many words at her Rose Garden introduction ceremony that uh, Scalia, for whom she clerked, his jurisprudence is my jurisprudence. And you can tell that from her academic and judicial right. writings as well. So there's a lot of variety among people. You know, this is not a, a monolith. You know, speaking about that, and you mentioned stereo decisis earlier, the, the principle that... Uh, Precedents have value, and literally let the precedent stand, the decision stand. Uh, interestingly, uh, Justice Scalia, in several of his dissents, even more than in his majority opinions, which weren't that many, but in, in his dissents, he, he often uh, cried out, you know, that uh, the issue has to be the Constitution, and, and it, it either is the Constitution or it's judges and uh, whatever their, their proclivities. Um, that's obviously going to be one of the main issues, even uh, in the day we're having this conversation this morning dawned, you know, just before the hearings began with uh, people saying we need to add this case, in this case Obergefell, 
uh, you know, to the questions posed to uh, to Judge Barrett about uh, stereodysis. So, you know, kind of walk through that, right? It, that, so now the list of precedents is, you know, added to this weird language of super precedents. Uh, tell us how to fit that in, what's going to be happening uh, in these hearings. Well, yeah, so on, on the issue of of when to overturn precedent, there's a, there's basically standards. How workable is this rule? How wrong was it? Was it just a little bit wrong or was it just egregious we see now? Um, how much have people relied on it? Have they built up uh, you know, businesses or organized their personal lives knowing this rule is in place or government agencies and stru- regulatory structures that it would really disrupt our lives and the law more to correct uh, that error than to than to leave it in place. Those are the kind of uh, prudential considerations that we're talking. And uh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett has actually written a fair bit about stare decisis, about how originalism matches with stare decisis. If you're a true originalist, do you just go by what the what you think the Constitution says, um, which might mean overturning precedent? That's certainly what Clarence Thomas would say. She says, uh, uh, somewhat like Scalia, although maybe a little softer, depends whether it's how entrenched it is, meaning uh, is there uh, is a precedent really embattled anymore? Does anyone seriously question, you know, nobody questions Brown versus Board of Education, for example, but people do question Roe versus Wade. Um, you know, the abortion debate has not been settled for the uh, nearly 50 years uh, since, since that decision. Other decisions, you know, Citizens United, uh, I don't know. I mean, has it or has it not? I mean, there's activists that talk a lot about it, but the average person probably has not seen a change in the way campaign funding is run or or what have you. Obergefell, um, I, I have a hard time seeing it ever uh, overturned just because so many thousands, I think at this point it's hundreds of thousands of people have uh, are in same-sex marriages uh, because of it and the various other tax treatments have been triggered. It's sort of very quickly become entrenched. And also the political winds were going in that direction anyway. The biggest, you know, I actually agree with Obergefell as a result, certainly not the reasoning or kind of lack thereof. I don't know what the rule of law that, that Justice Kennedy was getting across there, uh, but I do think that uh, the political winds were going there regardless and would have gotten there much less controversially uh, in, in, in a number of years, whereas with, you know, with abortion, we, we, we're still uh, equally embattled. But, you know, that's a part of the reason why the terminology of an activist court arose. It's because the court acted, uh, you know, and, and acted as a super legislature, in essence, uh, in Roe v. Wade for all kinds of political reasons. Uh, I actually think it's doubtful uh, that Congress could ever have uh, in the 1970s passed nationwide legislation on abortion simply because uh, representatives have to be elected district by district, senator state by state. There was no national consensus. That frustrates me now when people show a poll saying 78% of Well, that doesn't matter. Uh, Americans don't sit down and elect the Senate. States do. Uh, that's a very different equation. Uh, I tend to think, and I, I say this as a as a conservative Christian. I tend, I I think the secularization of the country and the the moral change that's taking place would have been potentially different on that, and that the legislature might have uh, acted, say, uh, in the course of uh, the decade after 2015 or or or, or there. But we'll never know. Uh, yeah. We'll just never know. We do know that Roe v. Wade was a failure. I mean, just. And I, I say that as someone very much committed to a pro-life position. But, I mean, it was just a failure because it clearly, I mean, Blackman at one point said uh, in, uh, uh, in the decision itself, in his majority opinion, he, he says, you know, I, I hope this will settle the issue. Well, 
No. Yeah, even, I mean, uh, you know, learned scholars on the left recognized that Roe v. Wade was not a, a good piece of uh, judicial writing. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, right. the late justice, actually uh, got into, this seems amazing in retrospect, but when she was uh, nominated by President Clinton for the Supreme Court, there were some questions by pro-choice groups uh, about a, a speech that she had given questioning the, the wisdom and the timing uh, of uh, Roe versus Wade itself, not because of her policy views on the matter, but on how one uh, how one rules, how one is a lawyer, uh, and that's not a very lawyerly um, uh, decision. But you know, this shows that on so many issues, the um, the the tensions uh, over the Supreme Court or the battles over nominations would be so much less heated if the court rebalanced our constitutional order by pushing more power back to the people, to the states, localities, so that they can govern themselves, as well as within Washington, uh, forcing Congress to do the legislation rather than punting, you know, passing the Truth, Beauty, and Goodness Act of 2020 and forcing the administrative agencies to actually write the laws, the rules by which we live our daily lives. Those two dynamics, the warping of our federalism and our separation of powers, uh, is responsible for uh, a fair bit of the supreme disorder, as I call it. Yeah, you know, and, and you make that case extremely well. Uh, and, and again, I commend uh, listeners uh, to read your book, uh, to get it and read it right now because of the relevance and understanding uh, what's going on even in the days uh, as we're releasing this conversation. Uh, you know, a, 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 about that, that entire question, and uh, one of the points you make is that uh, there have been a lot of presidents who've lost nominations. There have been a lot of soap operas uh, in the confirmation processes. Uh, I do think your narrative gets all the more interesting when you get into the 60s and you mentioned Abe Fortas. And, and uh, I mean, there are, there are huge questions like, why haven't the Democrats cared more about the federal judiciary? I, I, I don't get that. I mean, you, one of the points you make is that uh, even though Jimmy Carter never got to make a nomination to the Supreme Court, uh, there was a vast expansion of the federal judiciary. So he got to appoint a lot of federal judges. But the Democrats tend to leave a lot of these on the table. And, and you know, in retrospect, I mean, Lyndon Johnson conceivably could have still nominated a Supreme Court chief justice. He just, he didn't. Well, he was weak within his own party uh, and, and approaching the election when clearly, I mean, he wasn't running, so it wasn't going to be him. He was at lame duck already. And um, yeah, you're right. If, if, he, if he had chosen someone other than Fortas who didn't have those is, it's, it's very conceivable that he could have gotten someone confirmed. Um, there are only, in fact, in the last 50 years, uh, four uh, justices appointed by Democratic presidents, two by Clinton, two by Obama. Uh, and of course, Merrick Garland wasn't uh, acted upon, uh, which is, he's, he's one of 10 uh, that have not been acted upon uh, in our history. As I said, there's, there's precedent for, for anything. It's all pretty much political all the way down for, for how nominees uh, are treated. But there's two basic reasons why Democrats, and by this I mean Democratic voters or the base, has cared less about the courts than uh, their Republican equivalents. And I was talking to uh, Bob Bauer, who was President Obama's uh, White House counsel about this, and he, he made two points. First of all, uh, the Democrats didn't really have to worry too much about the courts. They were making enough decisions that they liked. And so, you know, there were certainly occasional ones that they didn't. But on the whole, uh, that's not what really uh, uh, got them activated. Uh, and also, 
uh, very few errors. It's, it's, it's hard to err by a Democratic president in appointing judges or justices because the legal profession, especially at, a, at, at its elite levels, uh, skews to the left. And the, the type of interpretive theories that are applied there, I'm, I'm not accusing anyone of being in, uh, acting in bad faith or just purely on being policy result oriented, but whether you're acting on pragmatism or what is the purpose of the law or the legislative intent or what uh, Justice Breyer calls active liberty, it all sort of achieves uh, the progressive, what, what the progressive view of justice might be at any given time. And so it's kind of the idea of judges or judicial appointments is all rolled into the issue of, of, of what kind of policies do we like. You know, thinking of that, uh, and again, the pace of your book just gets so fascinating, and you offer detail. You've done a lot of reportorial work and, and research in this. So it's, it's not just that you're bringing legal training to this. Uh, you, you have a keen political eye. You're able to tell the story very well. But uh, just, just kind of walk us through. I mean, you've got Bork. Uh, you, you, you've got uh, Thomas and then Kavanaugh, but you've also got a soap opera basically with every nomination now, it's just whether it's a louder or softer soap opera. Yeah, well, there's, that's, that, that's interesting background because a lot of the politics uh, or a lot of the interesting parts of these battles is what happens before the nomination is made. Uh, different factions of the party or uh, different interests, um, uh, try to prevail on the president to nominate uh, someone. You know, president Clinton, uh, famously uh, indecisive, uh, wanted to nominate polit a politician. We hadn't had a sitting senator or governor appointed for a long, long time. Uh, and so he really tried to prevail upon Mario Cuomo to, to take it, and he, and he wouldn't, because he was still had uh, his own Hamlet-like presidential right. uh, aspirations. Um, Plane waiting uh, on the tarmac. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, what's uh, here's an interesting side note uh, uh, about Bork connecting it to our abortion discussion. So Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973. It wasn't until Bork 14 years later that a nominee was really questioned about abortion or Roe v. Wade. We had John Paul Stevens, the, the first nominee after Roe, just two years later under Gerald Ford, and then O'Connor uh, in early Reagan, and then uh, Rehnquist elevated with Scalia together in 86, the year before Bork. Uh, and, you know, Rehnquist was the controversial one over his role in writing memos when he was a Supreme Court clerk in the 50s over civil rights uh, and took a lot, and his law and order positions as a, on criminal procedure as a justice. Drew all the heat there. Scalia, as the first Italian-American, very affable guy, smoking his pipe during the hearing, skated through, was confirmed unanimously. Uh, now, Republicans controlled the Senate, then they lost it. Joe Biden became the Judiciary Committee chairman in 1987. And, uh, you know, Bork ran into that, that buzzsaw, and Biden was still chairman for the, the Thomas hearings four years uh, after that. But it's, it's remarkable. If, if Scalia had been in 87 and Bork had been earlier, then it's very likely that both of them uh, would, have, uh, would have gotten through. And, and yeah, each, each one of these stories, you know, who do we choose and when and for what reason, uh, you know, it fascinates me. And I hope, uh, I hope that I conveyed that to the reader. No, absolutely. But you also triggered the obvious, and that's the name Joe Biden. So uh, in the Bork hearing, uh, Biden had actually made comments previous to Bork's actual nomination that it would be likely he would get through. Uh, something happened in the Democratic caucus in the Senate. Something happened in the Democratic Party between when Robert Bork kind of arose as a 
myth until he became an actual nominee. And then something happened during the nomination process. And by the way, I was watching every minute of that. And uh, I can still remember thinking that Bork was sinking his own ship partly by his attitude, you know, in the uh, in the hearings. But nonetheless, Joe Biden really begins to bank the Bork hearings as his political cred with the left. And Joe Biden, fresh off of uh, his uh, uh, or fresh going into his first uh, run for for president, um, after having told uh, President Reagan when the Democrats won the Senate in the November 86 elections that if he picks Bork, that's pretty much like Scalia, he'll get through. And I know I'll take some heat from some of these activist groups, but he'll get through. And six months later, after hearing a, uh, an earful from the groups, he he changed his way. And Ted Kennedy led the charge in terms of demagoguing it up, making the speech on the floor of the Senate uh, 45 minutes after the nomination was announced. Robert but Bork's Biden ran America. the hearings and orchestrated the uh, the strategy. And you're right, uh, Bork did not do himself any favors, as Senator Paul Simon, a Democrat of Illinois, on the committee would later write. Uh, Bork was trying to score debaters' points rather than gain votes. He gave these turgid academic answers rather than following the playbook that now we all know where the nominee tries to talk a lot and show how smart they are without really right. saying anything. Well, um, I, uh, I only met Robert Bork once in person, but I was in the room where he was speaking at other times. And I will tell you, the guy was born with a genetic code of condescension <laughs> uh, because he was a he was a towering intellect. And uh, I mean, frankly, he didn't have that many peers who had thought through these issues as well as he had. He was irascible, to use another term. And yet one of the points you make in the book is that this is a television event now, or it's now a social media event. So the personality of the uh, of the judicial nominee now becomes a big issue. And, and you pointed out you could have such a uh, such an antipathetic human being that uh, justices wouldn't sit with him or be in the country club with him. And and now you've basically got to have a certain kind of personality if you're going to get through this process. Well, we saw that a bit uh, with Kavanaugh, who was chosen because he was sort of a, a milk toast establishmentarian, if you will, uh, certainly part of the conservative mainstream, the legal establishment in Washington, uh, thought would get through, had been vetted six times, thought would get through easily than some of the other people and almost on did. Trump's list. And almost did. And, and almost did. Well, the thing is, if you remember, even before the Christine Blasey Ford allegations and other more crazier ones, even the first hearing had this, uh, you know, the the rolling filibuster, the Spartacus moment, all of this battle over the documents and what have you. It was it was uh, it was bizarre. Um, but 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 you're, you're right. You know, uh, Kavanaugh, you know, the one point that he was criticized for. Uh, was that maybe he got too heated. I mean, I don't know how anyone can react if you're being a, accused of being a serial gang rapist, uh, whether you wouldn't get a little uh, hot under the collar yourself. But uh, uh, yeah, the, the personalities of the justices uh, also you know, makes them more effective. This is why if, uh, if Judge Barrett becomes Justice Barrett, I think she could be even more effective potentially than the great uh, Justice Scalia, her mentor, because there are no sharp elbows or acerbic barbs with, with her. Yeah. You know, one other uh, aspect of this I want to raise with you is that uh, the Republicans have played a game ever since 1987. And I don't say that opposed to it because it was kind of necessary, especially given the composition of the Senate. But uh, uh, Republican presidents had to choose candidates who would not answer. And Republican presidents were very careful not to ask, uh, would you reverse Roe v. or overturn Roe v. Wade? 
and, and of course, it wasn't the same on the other side. I can remember when Bill Clinton said that he would only choose justices who would uphold Roe v. Wade. Uh, Hillary Clinton said it again in the presidential debate in 2016. I, I, I do sense that that game has run out, uh, you know, and, and when it comes to uh, Judge uh, Amy Coney Barrett, you're talking about someone who's not going to get by without being asked that question, and, and maybe on a Burgerfell and some others, too. Uh, but I think that's in the political calculus. I think uh, both uh, Majority Leader McConnell and uh, the Trump administration, President Trump himself, they figured out she's going to get confirmed anyway. Uh, well, the, the nominees aren't going to answer that question or about any right. other you know heated case because, uh, well, I mean, they'll say, as Justice Ginsburg patterned this pincer movement saying you can't get too much into the fact because that might come uh, before you and you can't talk too much about general theory because, well, that the judges deal with uh, real, real cases. Um, I don't think even though Bill Clinton did campaign on uh, only having a, a pro-choice uh, nominees, I don't think he asked them in their interviews because that's still considered yeah. uh, inappropriate. But and again, was a Democrats don't have to ask. Yeah. It's it's sort of assumed that if you're on the left uh, legally, politically, you're, you're going to be for it uh, uh, in that way. Uh, what's really changed is, you know, Trump's list was an innovation and he put out the list uh, breaking with political convention and conventional political wisdom uh, because people were doubting him. Republicans were doubting him. Uh, evangelicals, conservatives, you know, right. he is a thrice uh, divorced, uh, I doubt it you, you know, former Democrat who had been pro-choice, all, all these different things. How can we trust him? Uh, and so the, his masterstroke, Don McGahn, who became the first White House counsel and the architect of the judicial nomination strategy, uh, came up with the idea of putting out a list, which worked. Um, it solidified the base. And uh, I think Selena Zito has done wonderful reporting. She has a, uh, had a book out about the, about the 2016 election where, you know, uh, waitresses in, and, and truck drivers and farmers in Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, Iowa, Wisconsin would talk about the court in um, uh, sophisticated terms, understanding exactly what was at issue. So I have uh, one uh, big question I'm going to save to the end. But before that, I just want to take a risk and say, so what, what should folks be looking for in the hearings and, and what do you expect? Um, look for anything that's actually newsworthy um, because I'm, I'm not expecting much. Uh, the one moment that'll be unique and special is when the vice presidential nominee for the Democrats, Kamala Harris, who's on the Judiciary Committee, is asking Amy Coney Barrett, the Supreme Court nominee, questions. That has never happened before. So I've, I've said there's very little unprecedented as far as the politics surrounding these, these confirmation battles go, but that hasn't happened before. And uh, we'll see. That could become a moment in her confirmation. It could become a moment uh, in the election. Uh, but other than that, I wouldn't expect to learn much about you know, more about her than you can get from her writings already. Uh, I just had a, a cover piece in the Washington Examiner magazine uh, called The Brilliance Lives Loudly Within Her that you can read, kind of summarizing her jurisprudence. And I doubt you'll learn much about the state of the law. Um, so this is, this is mostly political theater, mostly kind of a kabuki process. Uh, you know, the Democrats no longer have the filibuster, so we'll see what kind of delaying tactics they might try. Now, you mentioned uh, by inf or implication there, uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein speaking to then judge nominee Amy Coney Barrett saying that the dogma lives loudly within you. Uh, what are the what are the Democrats going to do with the Catholic question uh, this time around? 
Yeah, that that dogma line sounds like some something that was rejected from Star Wars. Uh, it, it you know that atta- and uh, uh, Senator Durbin said you know are you an Orthodox Catholic as if you know only cafeteria Catholics need apply. Um, uh, that didn't do the Democrats any favors. In fact, that elevated uh, Barrett's profile to the point where she might not be the nominee now had they not gone after her in that way three years ago. Uh, and it certainly didn't help them politically. You know, religious attacks, uh, those swing voters in the upper Midwest uh, tend to be, uh, you know, some kind of religious voter, uh, maybe lapsed or not as church going, but still. Uh, and so that's not uh, effective. And we're seeing that a little bit in the media now, not as much from the Democrats, but, uh, you know, I'm a constitutional lawyer, not a political operative. So I, I, I don't know if you'll see the same kind of attack posed, uh, poised in the, in, the, in the same way. Uh, you know, they might ask about uh, abortion or the death penalty or certain things that might touch upon her religious views. And she'll say, look, I've written about this and I've said before, I apply the law uh, the same as Justice Scalia did. I learned from him. He was as Catholic as I am. And, you know, end of story. This is this is nothing new. Yeah, yeah I think it's uh, I think it, at, at least my reading and we're saying this before the hearing start. But my reading is the Democrats can't not bring up some of these issues, but they don't want to bring it up very far. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, what seems to be polling well for the Democrats is healthcare mm-hmm. policy and Obamacare. Mm-hmm. So it, they might even be, you know, at a certain point, they might come to realize that they're not going to stop the train and they're just going to be making yeah. arguments for the election. Now, as we close, and I, I so appreciate this conversation, and uh, but I want to come back to a term that you used in two different ways in your book. And it's one that's very crucial to me. At one place, you speak of the Founders' Constitution. And in another place, you speak of the Framers' Constitution. I think you're talking about the same Constitution, the same argument. But, uh, you know, Christopher Caldwell's made this argument in a, in a recent book as well. And, and throughout legal studies, uh, at least among more conservative scholars, that this is very much a part of the constitutional discussion. We really do have two constitutions uh, right now in the United States. You have the one which is, as you identified, the Founders and the Framers Constitution, the Constitution ratified in 1789. But there's another constitution out there. And, and what do you see as the, as the future of, of, of that issue? In other words, is there, is there much hope of actually returning to the Founders or the Framers Constitution? I mean, conservatives hold that out. Uh, strict constructionists, originalists, textualists hold that out. But I just want some intellectual honesty, and you're very honest in your book, uh, is there any real hope to that, or is it just a mitigation of the progressive trend? Well, it took us decades to get to where we are. It'll take us decades to work our way through to, to go back. Um, but it's not just about the founders or the framers. I mean, it's also about the, the framers of the 14th Amendment, which is very important and completed the Constitution, as some scholars say, because what that did was allow you to go to federal court to say that your state is oppressing you in various ways. And again, we properly have debates about what rights exactly are protected by the 14th Amendment, whether enumerated or or not enumerated, which is a, a separate question. But the idea of the states not being able to uh, uh, censor you or take away your guns or take away your property without compensation or violate your liberty in all sorts of ways. That's an important innovation, and that's uh, an important change in our constitutional structure. But um, you know, at, at the end of the day, um, it, it comes to the American people. You know, J- Thomas Jefferson uh, called the Constitution a parchment barrier, and if the people don't believe in it, 
uh, in part because our educational system doesn't teach it or, or for whatever reason, uh, then, you know, no amount of elite lawyering or, you know, hopefully best-selling books uh, uh, in that vein are, are, are going to help because it's, you know, talk about legitimacy, that comes down to whether the people believe that the, that the system, you know, that the, the people who have power uh, deserve to have power. Um, and, you know, that's a, a, a much more complicated question than simply how, to, how judges should interpret the Constitution. Ilya Shapiro is the author of the book. The title is Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations, and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Uh, it could not be a better timing for a book and uh, for this conversation. And so, uh, Ilya, thank you so much uh, for this conversation today. I, uh, I believe there are many people who uh, want to think in a more informed and more thoughtful way about the court. And hopefully this conversation will help them to do just that. Well, thanks for having me. And as a, as a coda or a PS, Albert, I'd like to add you, uh, we were talking earlier about the cover of my book is a little controversial. There's an activist yeah. sitting on Lady, uh, Lady Justice in front of the Supreme Court. I actually, through the magic of social media, someone connected me uh, to, to that woman. She's a political consultant and a lawyer in Colorado, happened to be in D.C., not to, not to protest Kavanaugh per se, but to meet with uh, Senator Cory Gardner about uh, uh, certain kinds of legislation and, uh, you know, got kind of swept up in this and ended up there. And we've actually had a series of very civil conversations, both over Twitter and, and, and by phone. So th something like that, at least, gives me a little bit of hope. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm all for civil conversation. And uh, I, I appreciate that today. And And by the way, uh, she's kind of indebted to you through this book because uh, you can kind of make each other famous in the, the, in the <laughs> weirdest right. symmetry right. of time. Yeah. Thank you again. Thank you. Take care. So here we are in October of the year 2020. We're facing uncharted political and, for that matter, judicial territory. We're talking about a president's appointment to the United States Supreme Court. We're talking about hearings before the United States Senate. We're talking about some of the most weighty issues confronting American public life. We're talking about how to read the Constitution. We're talking about a rather raw and sometimes raucous political process. We're talking about the hearings for Justice Amy Coney Barrett. We're talking about something that's just as relevant as any conversation could be in American life today. I very much enjoyed the conversation with Ilya Shapiro. He just couldn't have written a book that would be more relevant to the conversation today. But it's not only relevant, it's extremely helpful. Uh, I really appreciate the way he presents the issues, the narrative that he deploys, especially about the contested territory of presidential nominations to the nation's highest court. And uh, I'm in large part in agreement with his argument. I especially appreciate the reference to the Framers Constitution, the Founders Constitution. You hear me use similar language on the briefing and in my other public work on these issues. Uh, these are issues that I think should be incredibly important to Christians, but for more than one reason. For one reason, you've got the obvious reality of the power and stewardship of the United States Supreme Court. You've got the big issues coming before that court, issues, well, it's fair to say, of life and death and beyond about what kind of society we're going to be. But the second issue is we as Christians understand how much uh, it actually depends upon how we read a text and, uh, and how we're bound by that text or not bound by that text. So I enjoyed the conversation. 
you may have noticed that uh, Ilya Shapiro uh, mentioned the Obergefell decision and that he was basically in favor of it. Well, that's just a reminder of the fact that in, in the world today, we've got, a, we've got an assortment of worldviews, and one of them is libertarian. And uh, the Cato Institute is the most influential libertarian think tank uh, in America today. When you look at uh, American conservatism, especially from 1980 and beyond, the fusionism that's often discussed is a fusion of uh, corporate free market interests uh, and uh, conservative Christians and moral traditionalists and, yes, libertarians. And uh, it's something of a Venn diagram. In other words, there's an awful lot of overlap, but there are some real distinctions as well. And it's always healthy when those things come to the fore. And we ask the question, how could that be? And uh, that's where inquiring minds, responsible minds, try to figure this out. And that takes us back to the issue of worldview, which takes us to the issue of truth, which takes us to the relevance of this conversation. Many thanks to my guest, Ilya Shapiro, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than 100 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. And until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller.